three clap, one, two, three clap, one, two, three clap. Yes. All right. professional yeah we're like officially like four feet away from each other because we might have figured out how to use two mics this is yeah a very exciting day for us and probably going to be a really annoying process for jackie as she edits this episode welcome back to fascism podcast yeah so we're a podcast that talk about art and fashion and history through a lens of i don't know our lens yeah we you know, use these topics as fodder for our snark and social commentary and just having a good time. Yeah. And if you don't like it, I don't know what to tell you. Just turn it off. (laughs) I mean, like, to be clear, we haven't gotten literally any negative feedback about about the podcast. None. Um, We could use more five-star reviews, so... Give us five-star reviews. We're really loving our Australian fans right now. Yeah. I want to say don't be a Nigel and get your friends listening to this. Oh, it's a Nigel? I messed it up. I said Niles earlier and I Googled it and it was immediately it was Nigel and I was like, I'm not going to say anything out loud right now. (laughs) I only know about that because I watched that movie senior year with Busy Phillips, which it's okay. Okay. So yeah, you don't recommend it. I love Australians and I'm curious... Right into us, Australians. Do you like Busy Phillips? Is she, like, cool in Australia? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to know. I would love to know, too. What's the media around her? She's, like, I ha- has a boyfriend I know that's, like, sketch, but that's all I know. So should we go into what's trending? Let's do it. So what's trending for you, Hope? Trending for me is the gift of giving. I'm trying to get better at giving gifts. Giving gifts isn't really my love language, but I know people appreciate getting gifts sometimes. I mean, I feel like it's really hard because sometimes you just get something or give something that's like the person doesn't need or want and it just becomes like trash that they have to deal with. But I'm trying to not focus on that and and like try to give gifts. I got my mom a Mother's Day gift, like a cookbook because she's been really into learning Spanish and was just in Mexico with my sister. So I got her like a Mexican cookbook. Uh, I got my friend a book on watercolor, color theory. I don't know. Whatever. The gifts themselves don't really matter. I think I've just been taught. Wait, like, are they all books? They're not all books. I got my sister. I th- I found I got my sister a, a silk skirt because she's been wanting a silk skirt. And I, I got her some socks. I got four pairs of socks and let her choose two. We do a lot of gifts like that where like and it's I feel like we have similar tastes, but we always choose the thing the other one doesn't want. It's like we have similar tastes, but we always want like the different color or whatever. But Perfect. I feel like there was something else. Oh, I found a book on different like a book of art that has cats in it. So for my friend Jane, who likes art and cats. And she's always sending me art that she sees with greyhounds in it. So, but anyway, I've just like, I feel like we talk about love languages for romantic relationships, but I've been thinking about how I show love to my friends. And my overall conclusion was that like, I need to do more of it in in like all of the ways. So I was like, okay, I should like get better at getting gifts. Maybe I'll like 
Yeah, I haven't gotten one gift. Uh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that your birthday came after this like realization. Um, not a problem. I do not expect gifts. I mean, my love language is quality time, and what's the one where people do you favors? Acts of service. I do you know my theory about love languages. What? What is it? Well, I, when I say my theory, someone else's theory that I saw on TikTok. Well, it was made by a man. And it was a way for a man to kind of cop out of doing like a full human acts of love. I, yeah, I believe that. And I, I mean, my brother, his his were like words of affirmation. I'm like, that's such a cop out. I can't. He, yeah, his was like words of affirmation and physical touch. And I'm like, so the easy ones. Yeah, exactly. Like the ones that take literally no thought or time. And anybody that, I just thought that's a bare minimum. Also, that should be what you be, should be doing anyways. With all of those things, I feel like what I get from it is like realizing that there's differences. Like, oh, how does this, because like, you know, our friend Elizabeth, she does really like to get people gifts. Yes, yes. Like some people are really good at it. Like some people are really good at gift giving. And I think it is a true talent. I'm learning that you just have to like think a lot, which is hard because there's just like so many things to think about in a day, but you have to be like, what is this person like? Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. You have to know so much about a person. Like my friend watched my TikTok about surrealist art, about women surrealist artists and was like excited about Lee Miller and mentioned some biography. So I got the biography of Lee Miller, but then I was like, I don't know. She always listens to audiobooks. I don't know if she wants to read a book. But And then Brian was like, she lives in the woods. If she's not going to read a book now, when is she going to? But then I just chickened out and got her something else. What'd you get her? The watercolor thing and some tea towels but it is a lot of work but you know what it is my friend that's actually really also really really good at giving gifts she writes it down when someone mentions something mm. but that's the thing you gotta remember to write it down what's trending for you jackie i don't know rejection mm. <laughs> just didn't get the job that i wanted i also rejected another job that was offered when i say job i mean an internship you guys it's just it's bare minimum. A job where they don't pay you very much. Yeah. Or, or like have no responsibility to like keep you employed over like six months. No. Yeah, exactly. I have the fear of rejection. Like I'm putting myself out there. <sighs> it's just a lot. I'm going on a date. I mean, I if there isn't anything more like being rejected or the possibility of rejection happening. It's going on. I mean, the possibility is so high. It's so That high. someone will be rejected or feel rejected. Yeah, by the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully that doesn't happen. And yeah, so I, it's been, it's been fine. I mean, like, I will say that I've had a lot of rejections and there's a lot of doors that have been opening up. And I think it's because I'm hanging out with more people and like putting myself out there more because I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care if... Like, you know, like, who really gives a shit if I'm rejected? So many times. You move on. Yeah. You know? And so I'm just, like, really trying. And people are actually coming out of the woodsworks being supportive and, like, I don't know, in weird different ways. Like, you know, being a reference for me and the job. And, like, it's called networking. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I hate it. But it's also, like, these are people that I would consider, like, closer than acquaintance, acquaintances and people that I actually thoroughly enjoy. And I think they're doing me a solid by like, people have been sending me job things, you know, just like stuff. And I really want to say thank you, you guys, for that. Anyways, and I am in gratitude of like the people that have been coming out. I really want to leave my job. So I reject my job. That's for sure. You Ugh. will soon. Yeah, there was a guy, speaking of rejection, 
there's an older guy like in his 50s that came in and he was like what the fuck no and yeah we were like we just got potable potable water like two weeks ago so just so you a heads up dude who was he why was he there he was uh applying um for the job of another operator oh and was working at quote-unquote interview and he said that he was told something differently about the union like and how it went down versus our story of how it went down and i think that's fascinating why would they do that? They know that that's not going to like last very long. Because they want to sell an idea. They want to sell this idea of that they're a feminist equity. Like it was our idea to unionize. I mean, it was like they voluntarily recognized us, I think, purely for the PR. They are paying like the engineer like 65000 and they're paying the HR person or PR person like 90,000. If that doesn't give you a big example of where their priorities are. It's like, yeah. (laughs) That is America in a nutshell. Anyways, so just, you know, every day, everyday rejection. It's good for your soul. It is good. I I was at a clothing swap the other day and I was digging and the vibe was so good. People were so nice. Everyone was having a great time. Except for actually these two people came in with like a lot of seriousness and I like they had a bunch of bags out and it's like your bag is like with the, all the other bags where we're all digging clothing from. But I touched a sweater and they're like, oh, wait, um, like and like checked it. She was like checked in with her boyfriend. Like, are you putting this in? I don't know. They were just like very closed off about it. Like they didn't want to release their stuff into the pile. Like because there was a special place where you could do trades or whatever. And we were all like talking and being like, this is so cute. Let's look at this, blah, blah, blah. And I looked up this like half zip pink velour thing. But I was like, I'm never going to wear this. But everyone was like, oh my gosh, so cute, blah, blah. And then I put it back and the girl like picked it up and like took it. And I was like, she didn't even say anything. She could have been like, yeah, that's so cute. I want it. But instead she just like picked it up and didn't say anything. And you held a grudge. You were like. Well, it's just weird vibes. They, yeah. they just had bad vibes. But anyway, the girls that I was vibing with, someone found climbing shoes and then we were talking about climbing and I was like, well, if you guys ever want to climb, like I'm looking for more like female climbing partners. And they were like, yeah, yeah. Like, no, basically, <laughs> basically no. And I was yeah, like, yeah, we can get coffee sometime. They anytime. didn't even really say yes at all. It was just kind of, it was basically just like a no. And I was like, yeah. all right, sweet. Uh, but yeah, I'm down to just keep doing stuff like that. Cause like, who cares? Yeah. Who cares? I mean, it sucks personally, but it's also like part of life. And I don't know. You know how people are like say that there's – I mean, I am one of those people that I think I'm emotionally unavailable in relationships. But like you know how people are like scared of getting rejected? That's like one of their reasons they don't want to put themselves out there. Yeah. I'm like, who cares? I don't understand it. I'm like, you get rejected and then you just move on. It's so much easier for me in dating because it feels like – someone rejecting you what they're saying is like i don't want you it's like in a in a monogamous context it's like they're saying i don't choose you as my one person and you're like okay that's fine i don't have to be your favorite person in the world but like when someone rejects you as a friend they're like i don't even want to hang out with you ever they're like i saw your soul i looked into it i acknowledged it i i got to know it and i said no Uh uh-huh uh-huh whatever you're putting out i'm not interested in it (laughs) exactly those are deep cups and i'm not saying that you're not allowed to have emotional reactions to these things i think you are but i just think at the end of the day it it shouldn't hold you back from doing the next thing yeah for sure that yeah it's 
when I was like telling my therapist I wanted more friends, she was kind of like, why? What will that get you? Basically, her whole thing was always trying to get me to be like, I'm going to be okay, regardless of whether I have these things, like I am fine in myself or whatever. And I was like, yeah, but like, you know, if shit hits the fan, you just like need people, you know, like it's nice to have people. I that's that's when like therapy for me really breaks down because it's just like, yeah, I'm great. I'm fine. But like we live in a capitalist system and like I need a community to support me when things fall through. Yeah. Like when I get in poverty, who's going to help me out? Right. Right. Like I wanted some mix of like being okay with myself, but also like some goal based, which I feel like is more coaching where people are like, yeah, girl, like you can learn how to be a girl boss or whatever you want to do and it's like I don't want that obviously but it would be nice to have someone like acknowledging that it's okay for me to like want to grow as a person and if and by grow I mean have a lot of friends you're like party more (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like and Shelly and I talk about this where we're like we have like a thirst for friendship, but also just like never want to leave the house. I don't know. We're just so busy. You guys, we're desperate for you to DM us. Get in contact with us. Yeah, you know, so the the gals from Celebrity Memoir Book Club, when they do their live events, they like go out afterwards and invite all of their, they call them wormies. I'm not really into like having the a name for our audience. I am. Yeah. It's been a conversation. It's a little, yeah, a, a little behind the scenes uh, bickering. Uh, if you want to be called something, what were, what did, what did you want to call them? I, Fascists. That, I, that was my idea. Oh uh, yeah. I think that is your idea. You little fascies. Yeah. Our little fascies. I don't know. I don't know if that works though. That's you fair. Know? I don't know if, if we can take on the world by calling everything, <laughs> <laughs> by calling people fascists. Yeah. That's fair. And people identifying as fascists. <laughs> But I think maybe it could work. It only works when you read it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, saying it out loud, people would be confused. You have to explain. But anyway, yeah. So they go out with their fans. And I'm like, I really want to be a fly on the wall or just a person there. Like seeing how that goes. Like, is it gen? Does it feel genuine? Like sometimes like when YouTubers and like people with fan bases, influencers, whatever, say like, I love you guys. Or they talk about their community. Like we've really created a community here. And it's like, I mean... Have you? Yeah, I am suspicious of the ones that act like your big sister or try to be like sweet on you. I'm like, I bet you're a raging see you next Tuesday. And that's like, I'm sure people are having meaningful conversations like in the comments or like the people who DM said person, but like it's not a normal relationship dynamic. Oh, I mean, that's what that what are they called? Like. A social internet parasitic or something. I don't know. There's like a, there's a diagnosis where we think that, or it's like, uh, come on, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's like where we think we know everything about this person. Oh. Um, and we build a false reality of like, they're my best friends. Mm. And it's not real. I think we're pretty honest and real and authentic in the best way. I'm a little grumpy, all you know, like, but I went down to hang, but I'm also going to just don't expect me to be like smiling the whole time. I feel like you're not that grumpy. Wow. I guess I perceive myself as pretty grumps. Grumps. You're really good at like, you could be in a sort of a depressive state or whatever, just like having a bad week and you'll like say it, but you don't. It's kind of like you're funny about it too. I try. You know, when it's bad, you got to bring out the humor. Yeah. The only way to survive is to laugh through it. Am I right? (laughs) It's like, I don't need my friends to be happy all the time for sure, but it is nice when like 
the moroseness comes with like a dose of like sarcasm or just like seeing the absurdity in, in all of it. Yeah. You gotta you gotta crack jokes every once in a while when people are saying very traumatic things to you. Otherwise it's just like you leave it like I don't know, <laughs> untouchable almost, you know? Anyways, back to the content at hand. Yeah, why do you have Netflix put pulled up? I don't know. I was getting to something. It's just one of my tabs. One of my many fucking tabs. Yeah, you, uh, you just got to always be ready to pop on a flick. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, actually, yes. And Netflix doesn't have anything good going on they right never now. never do, yeah. Actually, they're in a decline. They had to lay off like 100. Really? Dude, like a lot of tech companies are laying off a ton of people right now. And some of them, like my friend was telling me the Apple is just not letting people continue to work at home. And that's like potentially a strategy for getting people to quit. Like instead of firing people, they're just gonna be like, okay, yeah, you have to come back to the office 100%. And people are like, no, we're not gonna do that. And then they're like, okay, then you can work somewhere else. It's a way of, yeah, they're trying to get wow. people to quit. Yeah, dude, tech is declining right now. Uber, I, yeah, I know nothing. So I'm just gonna say Uber. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I don't like? How you like Google Transit. Um, and then you like pick on the bus button and then it sometimes tell you to take a lift. Oh yeah. That's annoying. You're like, thank you. You going to comp that? Yeah. It's like, no, I'm not here for that. That's not what I'm doing. So today we're talking about androgynous fashion icons and it's kind of funny. Jackie and I both like had this idea. We were reading Andre Leon Talley's memoir and in it he talks about these androgynous fashion icons. He talks about Betty Cottrell, Marlene Dietrich, Catherine. Oh, actually, it's Marlena. I was listening to a podcast and that's how they were pronouncing it. Marlene. Oh, shit. We're going to say it wrong the whole time. Uh, and then and Catherine Hepburn. So they piqued both of our interest. And yeah, we decided to do an episode on it. I mean, I was interested because uh, androgyny is a, such a symbolism of culturally where we are. And it shifts and moves as you know culture changes and shifts and moves and i honestly don't understand why we even have the word androgyny i I understand why we have it but it doesn't it's so layered and and complex and and deeply entrenched in our societal norms you know so i'm just like androgyny i wanted to just do a little more research personally on celebrities that push those boundaries just because i you can get real heady with it you know what I mean? Yeah. We started talking about it and, and kind of just like threw out names of people. And then I Googled like androgynous fashion icons to see who came up. Names like Zendaya came up, like Cara Delevingne, like the Twilight person. Kristen Stewart. She's in Chanel all the time though. Yeah. I threw out Harry Styles and you kind of were like, no. Just because it's like he, he gets lifted up to the stars because he wo- he wears a dress. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... There are icons before him that have been doing this, and he's it's because he's a white male. I mean, like, that has a lot of fame and popularity. That's all. I'm, it's kind of like... Yeah. There are more interesting people to talk about, and and so that's, yeah, what we're going to do is, is talk about a couple people first. So I just literally just Googled right now androgyny. In biology, androgyny refers to individuals with fully developed sexual organs of both sexes, also called hermaphrodites. See, I don't like that. Which is interesting, because I, I think of androgyny as being like, without sex i mean that's yeah that's the thing it's connected to s- sex but it isn't well i guess i i think of it as meaning not representing as male or female but this is like saying that it means you're both but yeah who cares about biology yeah okay so i googled 
what's the difference between non-binary and androgyny? Genderrights.org.au, which I think is Australian, I'm not sure, said non-binary is a term that refers to any gender identity that isn't male or female. Androgynous refers to an outward appearance of indeterminate gender. While some non-binary people may express themselves not uh, anadrogously, it is personal choice that it is not a requirement of non-binary gender identity. So androgyny is more about the presentation. Androgyny is about the presentation. Non-binary is separate. And I just, it's it's how you identify uh, as a gender. And androgyny is how you represent yourself. So a non-binary person can look androgynous any other, like one day. But like, I guess androgyny, you doesn't mean exclusively non-binary. Androgynously dressing is also for everyone, but in our current societal norms, it is seen as mostly when people gender bender. Mm. Especially when femme presenting people dress more mask, or, you know, mask people present more femme. And it's considered more, it's just all considered more androgynous when you are representing something and you're dressing different from how you look or how you're representing. Androgynous is simply not indicative of their gender, but yet how someone chooses to represent their avatar. That's how I said it. I mean, there was like a study that I looked into in the 70s that was just like, you know, they're like, identify characteristics of masculinity and and femininity. And then they used the word androgyny when it was like a behaved combination of sensitivity and control. Like when he did Shakespeare, he was so gentle and emotional as well as strong and dynamic, like those kind of two um, things. And I just like found that interesting. But also I looked up on Course Hero um, about gender and sexuality through anthropology. Part of the problem is that gender has a biological component, okay? So unlike other types of cultural inventions such as sewing machines, cell phone, or, or a poem, we do have bodies and they exist and there are some male and female differences. But similarly, sexuality and sexual desires and responses are partially rooted in human natural capacities. So with saying that, this is a good metaphor that Course Hero uses. Sexuality and gender are like food. We have a biologically rooted need to eat, right, to survive, and we have the capacity to enjoy food. What constitutes as food, what is delicious or repulsive, it gives the context and meanings that surround food and human eating. Those are cultural. Many potential potential edible items are not food, i.e. rats, bumblebees, which is United States uh, cultural thing. We don't eat those, for example. And the concept of food itself is embedded in elaborate conventions about eating when, when like, how, when, with whom, where, you, what kind of utensils, for what purposes, a romantic dinner, at a gourmet restaurant, whatever. It's a complex cultural invention. In short, gender and sexuality, like eating, have biological components, but culturally, over time, have erected complex and elaborate how do you say this? Edificises? Edifices? Edifices. Around them, creating systems of meaning often barely resemble what is natural and innate. So that's all I wanted to kind of give a reference. And the last little thing is from Evolution Rainbow with Dr. Roughgarden. I don't know if y'all know. I might be saying that wrong, wrong, but I've only read it. Evolution Garden Rainbow is by this biologist, basically, that essentially talks about trans rights and trans activism and looks at it through nature. 
And the quote is, in ecology and evolution, diversity in gender and sexuality is... De- I shouldn't have picked such hard, hard quotes, I'm realizing. There's a lot of words. I- You're doing great. Denigrated by sexual selection theory, a perspective that can be traced to Darwinism. This theory preaches that males and females obey certain universal templates. The passionate male, the coy female... And that deviations from these templates are anomalies. And in the social sciences, variations in gender and sexuality is considered irrational. And a personal agency is denied. Gender and sexuality variant people are thought to be motivated by mindless devotion to primitive gods or compelled by far-fetched psychological urges or brainwashed by social conventions and so on. There is always some reason to avoid taking gender and sexuality variant people seriously. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think by going back in time and looking at a couple androgynous icons and to see how they were received and and how they expressed can kind of like, yeah, shed some light on cultural stuff. So, well, especially with the media and how they proceed it, because the media is the culture. Yeah. Yeah. So we will start with Marlena Dietrich, who was in the 30s, right? She made her breakout role in 1930 in Blue Angel, but she lived a long life. Yeah, born 1901, died 1992. And we first became familiar with Marlena Dietrich from Euphoria when Zendaya dresses up like her character from Morocco. Is that? Yeah, as Morocco, the character where she's, which I'm like, we argued about this in our episode. We're like, does Reuven know, have ever watched Morocco? Does she even know who Marlene is? Uh, Marlene Dietrich is like is no there's no way that that she had the information for that but who knows mm-hmm. and the, the money for a suit for it's actually a, a boy's child suit but yes that was the character that she was driving from kind of touching on her non-binary like ish stuff like her exploration and who she is and how she expresses herself yeah yeah so she was an actress she was born in Germany but basically renounced her German citizenship, said she was not German at some point, like was is known for having been very anti-Nazi. We're going to get into like some of the reasons why we're not sure. God, you guys, I've been to California for two weddings this month. Part of how I've been doing the research for these podcasts has been listening for this uh, episode, I mean, has been listening to podcasts while I'm at work and I like try to jot down notes while I'm working. Anyway, this is why my coworkers can't listen to this podcast. But <laughs> so I feel like I have a vibe where it's like, okay, she came to the US yes. and she wanted to get into acting. How did she get into acting? Well, you know, she tried several roles. She was a German actress where she did silent films and she wasn't very successful in that. I mean, like she didn't become, she didn't get any big roles. But then she ran into this guy named von Sternberg, which they sound like they were in an abusive relationship for what I gathered. Okay. It sounds like at the time, like in Hollywood, even more so than now, like way more so than now, like you basically had to, it was like beyond having to sleep with people to get roles. It was like you had to like succumb to their every need. But like they moved in together. They moved in together. But with both, both of them were married, by the way. She had a daughter and but like she didn't, they didn't have sex maybe. Okay, so there's conversations on each biographer that's like, they did and they didn't. Yeah. I don't know what the truth is. I'm going to say that they did. Yeah. It feels like it maybe it was a combination of like, he was her beard, but I don't know. 
Yeah. I like maybe that's why she was like fine whatever. But he was very controlling of her regardless. Right. Like he told her he told her like she couldn't go to like events. Right. Like he didn't yeah. want her going to like parties or like. Yeah. Uh, and she was like, well, it's fine. Like because he in the end, he like takes care of me or like something like that. Well, he was the director to like a lot of her films. I don't know the exact number. And she was the main actress. And they had maybe like maybe like a close working relationship. Like they seemed to like really work well together in a way. Well, I was reading some other things that their opinion was there was such a decline in both their artistry after they separated. And especially for uh, Von Sternberg, he didn't really do anything much after that, which is like, how much was it Marlene and how much was it Von Sternberg? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so Von Sternberg was married and eventually his wife filed for divorce. And one of the things that she put on the divorce papers was were that was that like, I forget the way they phrased it, it was like that he his affection had waned or like that he wasn't giving her enough attention or something, but that it was like because of Marlena that like that that was one of the reasons. It seems like their relationship had been deteriorating for sure. But like, yeah, which I mean, obviously, if your husband's like living with some other woman, you'd probably write that on the divorce papers. I mean, yeah, they had a pretty horrific uh, divorce. If you ever want to do some research on that, it's, it's kind of fascinating. I am that bitch that loves to hear about the drama. I mean, yeah, of course. And like, okay, so when Marlena got to New York, representatives from Paramount told her to change from the quote unquote drab gray suit that she was wearing into a black dress and a fur coat so that Americans seeing for her for the first time wouldn't think she was a lesbian. But despite that, she did gender bend or express non-typically feminine behaviors or whatever outfits in her movies. Yeah, okay, so she was cast or typecast as a femme fatale. Which is, I guess, to me, is still being sexual and present and sexy, mm -hmm. but also having, like, a sense of power and dominance, which you could consider androgyny because those are two mm -hmm. conflicting um, ideas of what a woman uh, role is supposed to be or how they're supposed to act, uh, especially during that time. Yeah, right. So it's like she's still all done up and, like, looks. But she'll kill you. Right, right. Um, and so Morocco, was that the first on-screen girl and girl kiss? Was that? In Morocco, that was the first on-screen girl and girl kiss. But here's the problem with this. And, and, culture, and like, let's look through the lens of 1930. It was a big fucking deal. She was dressed up in a suit. And this, again, this is where Euphoria took that and put their Halloween costume. But uh, she was a cabaret singer. She plays a cabaret singer in this film. And she kind of toys around in her suit and then she finds a lady in the audience and puts her lips on her and the audience the men and and which is the audience is mainly men and laugh like they're in on the joke it's almost like she's making fun of it which is all she could really do in that kind of position but i don't i don't know how much it did for like lesbians you know what i mean like well it's interesting because it's like she is a uh, quote-unquote joyous bisexual like why is she getting cast as these roles is it because that's just like a vibe she puts out is it because her and von sternberg were like like he knew this about her and so they were like writing those characters i, I think so and they they did it well, she has like she plays cabaret singer in like almost all their films it feels mm -hmm. like and i do think 
they push this glamorous kind of pushing like a uh, lady that loves to wear suits at European kind of ideal it is something that she drove to maybe it's again a conversation of like what their relationship was like and who was driving what but it I don't I don't understand how she got her I don't understand how she was allowed to do it honestly that's what kind of gets confusing to me I'm like I guess it was a moment in time where they were just like as long as she's like not trying to dominate and like still coming off as sexy uh, she's allowed to be on stage. She's she's still accepting of men in that in those roles. Also, no one like she stayed married. I think so people wouldn't think that she was a big you know slutty slut slut. And she was married to to the same man till the day she died. But I'm still or he died. Um, I'm still confused on like what the media portrayal, it seems like it was pretty positive toward her bisexuality at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and she had that relationship with that woman. Who was that woman? You, Yule Brenner? I don't know. She had yeah, like... She had a lot of relationships with a lot of women. She did. There was like some woman she was like living with or like just spent a ton of time with. She had a lot of affairs. She I mean, she slept with a lot of people. She had affairs with like men's wives like uh get a girl. Errol Flynn's wife, Lily Demita, she, um Claudette Colbert was a actress that she had an affair with. There was this well, supposedly, right? Right. Allegedly. I love that. I feel like we're like hot goss off the right off the press, but yeah, go on. Kennedy, she supposedly Jacqueline? No, no, no. The John. Oh, yeah. I heard, I, you know what I've heard? How he is in bed? I, it might be from that same podcast. Um, what is that podcast? That, you must remember this. Great podcast. Yeah. I don't know if it's from that one, but I have heard that he is a quick lay, like under two minutes, and yeah. he, doesn't do it, he doesn't do anything but like hammer it out. Ugh. And so he can't be that good of a lay. And also he had this, his best friend, he was quote unquote friends with that definitely lived at the White House. So, I mean, you know, sexuality is uh, fluid. But, anyways, it's just like if you're that bad in bed towards women, if you have no, I, I don't know. Right. Okay. But so then there's this group called the Sewing Circle, which is referred to a group of like lesbian, bisexual, bi curious Hollywood ladies. So, actresses like Greta Garbo, uh, Marlena, Joan. Jo- Crawford, Barbara Stoniak, Tallulah Bankhead, Claudette Colbert, Catherine Hepburn, um, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I'm reading from osewingcircle.tumblr.com, but it says the atmosphere in the Hollywood lesbian community began to change in the late 1920s and 1930s. This change was a reflection of three important developments. One, the increased adoption by the general public of the morbidification of sexual relations between women promoted by some sexologists uh, to the rise of the studio system in Hollywood and three, the onset of economic problems connected with the stock market crash. And so the effect of the heterosexual backlash and the rise of companionate marriage was to push women who loved women further into the closet. So like, and then the rise of the studio system meant that there were these women like if women were ever to venture for out of the closet and be caught by the public, like the news media, the news media would not print the story. Hard economic times made women vulnerable to the demands of studio bosses who protected them. 
So like vulnerable enough, for example, to like agree to date or even marry a man in order to appear heterosexual and they actually were not. So like many lesbians and bisexual women in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s, especially those from Europe, gathered at the home of Bertold and Selke Vertel. And so the, they were German emigrants who had made it into the Hollywood in the 19, who came to Hollywood in 1928 to work in the film industry. Um, they said like many of women who gathered at this home were Gillette blades, quote unquote, that is their sexuality cut both ways. And so nice. Some American born actresses also fit into this category of bisexuality, while others were lesbians who adhered to the older model of the Boston marriage and lived with their lovers in what were purportedly platonic relationships. But then after World War II, with the rise of the Cold War in the late 1940s, the situation of Hollywood lesbians once again underwent a paradigm shift. After communists, homosexuals were the favorite targets of witch-hunting politicians and bureaucrats, especially... They sure were. Yeah. The MacArthur trials really tried to kill off any gay men especially his career i'm just not fully understanding what the sewing circle is it's just like a group of women that hang out it's a group of women that hang out and marlene ditrich was a part of it and she fucked it was just like a bunch of girls who would hang out but like we suppose we assume that they had sex like sexual relations and they were all in hollywood but yeah she was when she broke up with Von Sternberg or whatever his name is, she was going out on the town. And this was definitely the introduction of the sewing circle. Oh, right. Because he basically wasn't able to control her anymore. Exactly. And she really was just like meeting people, connecting to people that include the sewing circle, which I think might be just a sexist. I don't know who came up with that term. Yeah, Jackie doesn't like that term. It just seems like, it, I guess it could be a way to hide what they're doing. Like women could have been like, oh, we're just having a little sewing circle. And the men would have been like, I don't want to do anything like that. And it would have been perfect. But like, I think it might have been like the media being like the quote unquote sewing circle because that's what women are doing. Yeah. They're Like, it's just always. It makes me curious, like if the media was talking about this, like. Was this gossip at the time? That's what I'm curious. I'm confused on how people have any information on it. And I guess it's through letters and personal letters because I doubt the mainstream media was discussing it. But at the same time, it seems like Marlene was out and... Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like she was hiding and it doesn't seem like it really affected her career negatively. No. So I'm, I'm confused on that too as well. Her films were banned in Germany. Mostly because she beat was like anti-Nazi for a while. I mean, for her, supposedly entire life. But and at some points in her life, she just like would say she wasn't from Germany. Like she, she really like would just say whatever it sounded like. Like she would just lie. Yeah, she was rather an enigma in the sense that she would just say things that weren't true. Like she would say things like "my sister is" and blah blah, and like in Germany because she would still be located in Germany, and and they it, you would. From the name of it, people would make the assumption that she's in a like a camp, a, like a Holocaust camp, and but actually she's like an active like participant in the German society and yeah. living comfortably, um, probably as like a Nazi supporter. Um, so there would be portrayals that she would try to like feed off as like not a completely accurate, but not inaccurate. It made me curious when learning that her daughter lived with her in von Sturdberg. It kind of seems like she just like. How did she didn't really want to have a kid? 
Well, that's what happens when you don't have rights as women. Yeah. You don't, you have a kid because you have a kid. I mean, I feel bad because this is like a person who's alive right now, like her daughter, I think. Her, her daughter is not alive. No, I don't think she is. Look it up. I, I want to put money that she's not alive. You think she's going to listen to our goddamn podcast? I, she's in her 80s. She don't know what a podcast is. She is. She is alive. 97. Damn. She's on the verge of death, though. So I'm not, I'm not all the way wrong. She's not a young 45 or anything. No. Uh, you, don't, you can talk shit. But also, I don't think she's, I think she's a victim of a terrible childhood. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like she, like, she remembers, like, Sturtberg, like, when they weren't living together, they, he would, like, stay overnight, but try to make it seem like he didn't stay overnight. So, like, he would come in in the morning he would like leave and then like act like he was coming over for breakfast being like, hello, good morning. I just showed up. And she was like, I'm not an idiot. Yeah. Um, yeah. She basically like slams her mom in a memoir. Like, yeah. And there's I was reading a New York Times piece called like how she's an enigma, basically, because all the biographies that are written about her, there's a lot, apparently. But the ones that stand out the most is Stephen Bach uh, book, Marlene and the one that her daughter wrote. Those are the two books that are kind of the most prominent ones. Um, they have very, like, not only conflicting information, but gaps of information that you could write your own biography about. So there's still room for more biographers. If you're looking <laughs> for your next gig, I actually was like telling my friend when I was in California that like, I've, I'm like, I'm into memoirs and biographies now. Like, I never thought I'd like these kind of books, but I don't know. They're just easy reads and like pretty fascinating, but it makes me feel like just kind of lame for liking them. But he made the case of like, like a good biographer, like really shows you an entire person. Like they should, like the biographer should have talked to Marlene's daughter. Like, you know, like you really want to get. Stephen Bach, you mean should have? Yeah. Absolutely. But I think he was paid to portray her positively. And it's like, I guess a good biographer is supposed to like, really give a complete picture of someone like so far reading the Anna biography I feel like they the Amy O'Dell like she's talked to a lot of people and so and you already do hear like about conflicting things it's like we think of people the way people are portrayed in the media it's like you you only hear about like some of their personality traits but then when you read a good biography it's like they acted like this in this situation and then like this person perceived them as this whereas this person perceived them as this and it's like oh yeah because people are complicated yeah and that's it's always interesting because you have different relationships with every single person yes. that you interact with yeah and it's it's in its varying degrees of whatever it is yeah you know like yeah. would you read that memoir Stephen Bach ones or either of them the daughters uh, I don't know how interested I am in reading more about Marlene mm-hmm. I feel like she, I, I'm never really going to understand her and everything that's going to be put on on about her hasn't been well done and it depends who the writers are. I I would read her daughters just to like get the hot goss because I did read some of the snippets and sexual assault slash some rape shit did occur. Um, and I'm like, damn, okay. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I am just interested in like what it means to be old Hollywood and growing up in that society, especially... With Marlene being your Marlene being your money, mommy, yeah, it could be interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's like at the top of my reading list right now. I'm just scrolling through 
pictures. I'm trying to like give a synopsis of like. I can, uh, yeah, I have a little quote. I dressed for the image, Marlene Dittrich famously said in 1960 interview. Not for myself, not for the public, not for fashion, not for men, which I would disagree with. The celebrated actress who rose to fame in the 1930s claimed she had no interest in fashion and that left to her own devices, she would simply wear jeans all the time. Which I think this is, again, a PR move. Mm. Uh, but legendary costume designer Eve Head said Dietrich's uh, fashion knowledge surpasses many actresses you met, she'd met. In fact, she had learned how to impeccably craft her image early on in her career as a femme fatale. And doing so during her decades in the spotlight, Dietrich became known not just for her sultry femme fatale characters, but her refined, daring style choices that make her an endearing fashion icon. And I could say that Dietrich is remembered in the collective consciousness as an anti-Nazi bisexual femme fatale. I'm going to say femme fatale a lot for her. That it didn't care about the rules. And that's a big thing with, I think, androgyny. It's like you're just going against the norm. Her androgyny got her in trouble she even got arrested in Paris, uh, apparently upon her arrival, because she was wearing a suit. You didn't know this? Uh-uh. I think it was like the 40s or 30s. She arrived at Paris in a suit, and she got arrested at the arrival station. For wearing, for a, wearing a, suit. a suit. Yeah, because it was technically illegal for women to wear pants in Paris until 2013, actually. Not 2013. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what my notes say. Yeah. Yeah, but like I think it became less of a problem probably around the 60s, is what I'm going to assume. Yeah. So wearing uh, the iconic suit in the 1930 film Morocco, where she simply openly kisses a woman on the mouth, which we already talked about, yet being an actress still put a level of expectation of femme beauty standards. Yeah, and it, we learned that she was like really particular about how she was lit, right? Like it seems like she was very particular about her image, like how she looked on film. Yeah, I don't think her lifestyle was very common at the time. Oh, well, it's probably common enough, but it wasn't in, it definitely not in American media was it celebrated or talked about. It was definitely counterculture. But my whole thing is she used her sexual power as considered by men. She had worth in that binary society. So she was still using what she knew to be seen as ex acceptable and not really pushing that boundary another level. But like she claims she is, but she's not. It's like she's, it's just kind of confusing when she's so obsessed with beauty standards. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Like, we're not exempt. It's hard to not care, even when you are as radical as you and I. <laughs> well, the times are tough, and that's what I'm saying. I'm giving the context of, like, those that era of being a woman. It's just, like, no rights. I mean, you did, you could vote then. That is something that you could vote. But it was still, like, you couldn't do anything without a man's permission. Right, and so she had to, like, play by Hollywood rules... She had her, like, Hollywood kind of, like, almost quasi-husband. Yeah, it, it's such an interesting relationship. Yeah, it's and it's, like, her bisexuality, I don't think necessarily informs her her drogony style, but it does, you know? Like, I think there is this, there, you can't say that she was an androgynous without mentioning that she was also bisexual. Well, and it's, like, a lot of the other women in the quote-unquote sewing circle didn't express androgyny like she did they were just bisexual or lesbian or whatever and still like put on way more of like a typical exterior within Hollywood. Like a femme exterior? Yeah. Exactly. And okay, so speaking of Gail Rubin, who actually I learned on TikTok first, mm -hmm. of, is like a 70s 
wrote, I mean, she's still alive in, in writing theory to this day, but she wrote, she was like, her heyday was in the 70s, I would say. She's an anthropologist who writes on feminist theory. And in her her piece called Toward the Anthropology of Women, she, wa- she talks about the sex and gender system and how it's shaped by human concept, as we know through like just how anthropology looks at gender. Yet part of social life, which the term, uh, it, which is the locus of the oppression of women, describing gender as the socially imposed division of the sexes. So yeah, it's created by men, and the binary is the, the characteristics of women. Again, are created by men, so therefore being a woman is going to be oppressive. And her point being like, although biological differences are fixed, gender differences are the oppressive result of social interventions that dictate how women and men should behave. Women are oppressed as women and by having to be a woman. And therefore Marlene still suffered from being a woman regardless of her manly clothes. She still had to present female no matter what. Yeah. (laughs) And let's not forget she was still white, skinny woman at the end of the day, so... I didn't do much research on Betty Cottrell because she wasn't one of our like people, but I did just want to like bring her up because um, so Betty Cottrell is another one that Andre Leon Talley talks about in his memoir, and he was actually really close with her. So she she was born 1945, so 45 years after Marlena Dietrich, um, and she I don't exactly understand what she did. She like met. Yves Saint Laurent at a club and he and they just like oh yeah felt they had a similarly confusing relationship where they like spent all their time together but I don't know he was like they were just biffles yeah yeah okay she was like his muse (laughs) she like inspired a lot of Saint Laurent um and he like asked her to walk for him when he met her but she was like and she said no and she was like any other woman would have been like so excited to be asked to to do a catwalk but like I was like no thanks um, you know, very pick me, but yeah. But she said I was androgynous, asexual. That was how she described herself. This was in a 2020 interview because they just did like some exhibit on um her fashion. Oh, um, okay. it was 2020, but she says I have always been like this. I am unlike anyone else, either mentally or physically. Too tall, too skinny, too sharp. Fucking so sorry for you. Yeah. Besides, I do not like anything a woman is supposed to like. All this deeply annoys me. Yes, I am like an anomaly. I always wore jeans, a men's jacket, even if it came from monopri at the start. I only dress in men's. I feel neither girl nor boy, but more in the position of seduction dressed as a boy. Wow, real confident. Are they non-binary? Do they identify as non-binary? Yeah, I don't know. But I find it interesting that like androgyny, when it's used in that way of like not being sexual, like... Uh, yeah, I, I, that's not necessarily true. That's, right. That's a confusing term. That, the, And also, like, they're like, I was female at birth, but I decided to wear pants. <laughs> and so, which is something that I've, I, I thought with Andre Leon Talley also discussed Marlene Dietrich and Betty and all these people that he considered androgynous. And it's, it, again, it's just women that are wearing pants. Which is funny because now it's like that context that doesn't exclude you from being feminine by wearing pants. Right, right. It's really interesting. Yeah. In an interview, she said, I did not have any activity. I am a person fully supported, maintained all all my life. I do not work. I'm I'm a very exceptional case. I was so spoiled without having any obligation except moral, obviously. The only things I did were nice and fun. I'm just like, what the fuck? Like... She just met someone at a club and then... It sounds rich. It's coming off very wealthy. Very. Um, 
coming off which rich people shit. But I will say you St. Lawrence or Lawrence, however you say it, YSL. Uh, some of their 70s and 60s stuff was groundbreaking in the sense that they were putting women in suits. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like she was very much influencing that. Anyway, just a little aside. And then, yeah, so we'll go further. Oh, I wanted to touch on the end of her life. Okay. Marlene's. Marlene Dentrich, like, fell and broke her hip. And that mm. kind of started her 20-year um, insulated, uh, oh, reclusive yeah. nature. Right. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that she was aging and she didn't feel beautiful. Oh. So she became like a prolific writer and talked on the phone a whole ton at the What did time. she write? She would just write to people, you know, her friends. Like when I say prolific writer, she was just like writing, writing letters. letters. And she wouldn't allow people to come visit and see her in physical form. And I, again, I just want to touch on the fact that it was... She was so pushed by um, the society, the Hollywood society, to look glamorous at all times when mm. aging affected her like it does everyone. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't, she took it so personal. Did she get plastic surgery? I, I don't think, I'm sure she did. She had like fake facelifts and stuff, but like the, I don't know how the surgery was back then. Yeah. You know? So. And I think that's I think that should be noted in the fact that your body has a big impact of how you're presenting, and fashion does too. Not to say that fashion doesn't, because it obviously does, but also like I think you can get away with a lot more stuff if you're presenting a certain kind of feminine attributes that are coming off as like like being skinny. Like it, it's just like a whole like those things really almost killed her. Is what it like pushed her into. A world of reclusiveness hmm. um, because she no longer felt of value because she couldn't represent those things that she had for so long. Because she still had a female body and female bodies aren't allowed to age. Exactly. And so even if she, even if she did feel non-binary or feel androgynous, androgynous, I don't think she ever felt non-binary. But she, it's like confusing though because it's like we don't use no one used that language back then. Exactly. So it's like she. But yeah, so regardless of like how she expressed or how she felt, yeah, she still was embodied in a female body that she felt like had to look a certain way. Exactly. That is what I was getting to. Thank you. Yeah. Summing it up. All Uh, right. Moving on. Yeah. We next wanted to talk about Dennis Rodman, a really exciting other very different example of someone (laughs) who dressed outside the norm. Yeah. a reason I wanted to pick him out is like there was a quote by at Co- Cowboy Bagel on iTunes or pff, iTunes yeah, like I'm, I'm an like... old person um, <laughs> on t- Twitter that everyone in 2019 looks like Dennis Rodman in 1996. And I love that. And that was a retweet over 20,000 times and it had 73,000 likes. So it's a very popular idea. Um Maybe not, maybe not the most popular one we could say on the internet. <laughs> not the most, but definitely up there. Yeah, I, I watched some of most of The Last Dance, the docu-series about Michael jo- about the Bulls, mostly about Michael oh, Jordan. Oh, yeah. I remember Steven, when I was dating him, he would update me regularly about that. Yeah, Brian and I watched it early on in our relationship, and there's an episode that focuses on Dennis Rodman. And yep. yeah, you come away realizing, or for me anyway, that like what he was doing at the time was so counterculture it was so like before it's time and yeah and that's what i really want to hammer in because there he is a fucked up dude yes problematic 
Absolutely. But I think in the time and place that he was doing the things that he was doing, revolutionary mm-hmm. and really paved the way. And I, I want to, I, I just want to have some empathy for him mm-hmm. being that person that was so constantly trying to be cut down. Mm-hmm. I, yes, but he is pro fascism. So it's, you know it's what complicated. I, you know what I found out that was interesting? The reason he ended up in North Korea with that leader is it Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il? I can't remember. I can't either. But apparently Vice wanted to do a yes. piece. And so like he kind of just like got roped into it. Yeah. Like they were like, what would make Kim Jong-un take a meeting with us? Oh, he loves the Chicago Bulls. If we bring a Chicago Bull, like he'll have a meeting with and us. And honestly, here's my thing about it. Like not to defend North Korea at all. But like if Dennis Rodman is just going with the flow and the fact if someone treats him nice, he's going to like them. He's not trying to look past that. He should. Yeah. But this guy like pampered him, gave him all these things. I mean, he was just like, it was a great time. He was nice to me. I don't right. see it. Which is not how like if he had more empathy to give, if he could actually think through, oh, this guy is hurting millions of people and like starving them. But all he could see was what he was seeing right in front of him. Yeah, very interesting situation. Obviously, Dennis Rodman is famous for being on the Chicago Bulls. Oh, was he on the Chicago Bulls? I think he was also on the Pistols. Honestly, Pistons in the beginning. Pistons, okay. And then he got then he got put on the Bulls. Wow, hopes are real ball head. Well, <laughs> I was well, like the only time I really paid attention to sports was in like 1997 when the Bulls were very popular and I was living in Indiana and the Pacers are in Indiana. And Chicago is, you know, next door in Illinois. Uh-huh. So, like, there was a big, like, whatever. There was a big rivalry. People were talking about it. Yeah, we'd watch the games. It was a very exciting time to be an avid basketball fan. But, yeah, so people didn't, like, necessarily take him seriously at first. But What was the general consensus around him during if that you could remember during that time? That he was a weirdo. And kind of unhinged. Yeah, which aren't inaccurate mm-hmm. at all. I mean, he was born... In New Jersey, I think. But he grew up in Dallas and one of the, what town? Oak Cliff, which is superior, supposedly one of the most impoverished areas of the city. And he had two sisters, Deborah and Kim, who are also very good at basketball. Oh, huh. Yeah. And Deborah and Kim would go on to become All-Americans to Louisiana Tech and Stephen F. Austin. And Deborah won two national titles with Lady Texters. Just want to throw that huh. out there. Side note, Seattle Storm, the women's basketball team here, very good team. We have thrown around the idea of going to a game. We, we keep, we, I bring it up because like, I want someone else to do the work. You know, like, I don't know even how to buy a ticket. Dude, someone was giving away free tickets on my Buy Nothing group for a game last night. But And you didn't do... Well, we have... We had we, plans. We went out, probably. Anyway, so yeah, he grew up in a place. Him and his sisters were good at basketball. And then he was short, or he he grew I like mean, a... I he mean, his sisters were better at basketball than him. He did, wasn't interested. He got cut from the, the football team at high school. That was a big bummer for him. Hmm. He wasn't even playing basketball in high school. He was, like, on the bench the whole time, and he quit after, like, six months. Wow. Yeah. And that was before his growth spurt? Yeah. And then when he turned 19, he went to – where? hold on, let me find my notes. By the time Robin was 19, practically every hormone in his body had begun to explode. And then in the next two years, he shot up from 5'9 to 6'8". That is bananas That's, like, literally in Space Jam when, like, the little characters – have you seen Space Jam? Oh, (laughs) 
Have I seen Space Jam? Of course. I think I masturbated to that bunny. Oh, anyway. Lola? Yeah. So hot. Yeah. Um, it's like the scene where the like those little aliens take that pill and then they become the monsters and they like get like really huge. Oh my god! Honestly, yes. that's like some really intense growth. That must have hurt. I wonder if every day he woke up like in pain. You know, he's like yeah. his hand, like his arm, one arm was longer than the other, and the next day the other arm would get longer. It just seems like every day you're growing like an inch. He says that for a long time he refused to leave the house because he felt so odd because it was just like the growth was happening at such a rapid speed. And it was weird, he says. My clothes wouldn't fit me at all. And he began showing up for his evening out in the coveralls he wore to work at, at Henry Butt's Oldsmobile, which he made $3.50 at the time, cleaning cars. Just wanted to throw that out there. This is when he was 19. And then he started to get really good at basketball, literally because of his growth. Yeah, maybe he had already laid some, some foundation. No, he wasn't even... He wasn't even going to school at the time. So he decided to like get back into basketball at that time. Yeah, he started playing hoops and he was like, wow, I'm getting really good at this. And then like he was asked to go to some team and they paid for his scholarship after that. And he didn't like it, so he quit school after six months. And then he was on the streets, basically. He's like, came back home to Dallas, and he was just like a bum. And his mom was just like, You need to get off the couch. And then, like, somebody offered him another, like, he just had opportunity after opportunity to kind of just mm-hmm. come for him because he was just so fucking tall and like six packy. Mm-hmm. I think they were just like, he, There's no way he, he has to be a basketball player. Mm-hmm. And they, called him again when he was like 21 at this point and they were like hey and you have to move to oakland oklahoma and we'll pay for your school um if you play in our basketball team there and i don't think he actually completed any college there either Hmm. i'm not for sure nor do i really care but while he was there i was reading on dennis robin because i just kind of wanted to know about his because he would also say controversial shit, right? Mm. And I don't remember any of the controversial shit that he actually said. Do you? No. Right. But one of the things was saying that Larry Bird is overrated in a lot of areas. And I don't think he's the greatest player. He was way overrated. Mm. That was a quote. And then um, this this article called Black and White and Gray, Piston Dennis Broadman's life was complicated by racial matters long before his inflammatory words about Larry Bird, which... That's a loaded title. Mm-hmm. Inflammatory words. Maybe they're right. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I mean, I think he's right. Anyways, so uh, those derogatory words about Bird. He Also, the writer said these derogatory words. Mm. So he's coming off as like, he's already pissed. Mm-hmm. Um, about Bird, Wiley claimed as the NBA's best or, or worst second best player, felt good as they came, cassading out. Why does he get so much publicity? Robin continued. Because he's white. You never hear about the black pair being the greatest. I would argue that Michael, as this is before like Jordan cemented, cemented his player as all time greatest. But Michael Jordan is definitely yeah. But it's the like greatest. he was literally the best basketball player e- ever. Ever. You outstanding, surpassing everybody. Yeah. Like there was no way you could deny it. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know anything. I just know that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's been interesting. Cause yeah. Cause sorry. Go on. What are you gonna say though? Well, a lot like. To prepare, I listened to, like, the podcast that mentioned Dennis Rodman. A lot of them were about sports. So I ended up, like, hearing 
hearing a lot of more sports than I necessarily needed to. Yeah. But they were talking about how like at the time people would just try to like injure Michael Jordan. Like they was just like, wow, you had to just, he was just such a good basketball player. They were threatened by him. They wanted to hurt him. I mean, that makes sense. There was just no other way for people to beat him, basically. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But anyways, from where, when he was sitting by, uh, when he was saying all this, a nearby Detroit teammate of his, Isaiah Thomas, agreed that if he were black, he'd just be another good guy. And this article goes on to talk about, like, when he was in Oklahoma and his experience in Oklahoma. And I just find it interesting because I don't think we can separate the body from the clothes here. Like, Mm -hmm. the way the media perceived him was as a black male. Mm -hmm. And that is how they treated him. So... He wear he like dyes his hair a lot is like one of the things I remember he would he was like always doing crazy things with his hair and he had like facial piercings and even that at the time like as like you know growing up in like a Christian family in the Midwest we were like oh Dennis Rodman you know like he's so like weird like alternative but um that was like he continued to grow into this self expression um in 1993 he did. He attempted suicide, and the only reason it didn't, like, work or he didn't go through with it is because he fell asleep in his car. That sort of was, like, the beginning of his flamboyant reinvention. In his book, he said, I killed the Dennis Rodman that had tried to conform to what everyone wanted him to be. Um, You know, he dates Madonna, and, like, they have some, like, cool outfits. He dates uh, Carmen Electra. That's when I remember him. Yeah. He dresses in a wedding dress, I think, like, to promote his book. He says, like, he's... And a wig. There's a wig. Yeah. And it's he full said, drag. He's, like, marrying himself. He uh, said he's... His response was, I'm bisexual and I'm marrying myself. And I was like, I don't know why you had to mention the bisexual part. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like... As if, like, oh, because I'm both... Because I'm yeah. into both. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so... And then he says, to hang out in a gay bar or put on a sequined halter top makes me feel like a total person. And not just a one-dimensional man. And then I found this article that was in the Baltimore Sun in 1996 by Roy H. Campbell. I'm calling him out because this article fucking sucks. Okay, the title. Dennis Rodman crosses the line fashion. When it comes to drag, the Chicago Bulls star is not only as bad as he wants to be. That was the name of his memoir, As Bad As I Want To Be. He's without a clue. It's outrageous, but perhaps it's not too late. Okay, here, I'm going to read. The Chicago book signing did it. I'm assuming it's like he was signing copies of his book. That May event made it very clear that Dennis Rodman is in dire need of a makeover. The reason wasn't that Rodman, bad boy of the basketball court, held court in drag as he signed copies of his autobiography, Bad As I Want to Be. It's that he was in bad drag. Nothing's worse than a bad drag queen. Wait, is this a gay man writing it? Like, who is this man? Yeah, we should find that out. Roy H. Honestly, the drag wasn't that bad. I've seen bad. And also, how dare you gatekeep drag? That's the whole point of drag. It can be bad. He seems to write about fashion. Interesting. Um, yeah, very curious. Okay. So he's probably gay. (laughs) Um, am I right, ladies? (laughs) He says, his cat woman caked on makeup was thick enough to make bricks. The neon pink boa was ultra tired, like campy, classic, rocky horror picture show stuff. The silver hair, foul. The sequin halter top, cute, but hardly the stuff a glam cross-dresser would die for. In fact, Rodman is giving cross-dressers a bad name. And he still managed to look better than he does most most days. So yes, Rodman is as bad as in bad looking as he can possibly be. 
It need not be that way. Like his former love mate Madonna, Rodman is bent on pushing boundaries. In his new book, he writes, I like to shock people to have them wonder where I'm coming from. To hang out, okay, and then he says the thing about the gay bar. But unlike the material girl, this much tattooed, much pierced, overdyed basketball star is, is style clueless, off the court or on, in drag or out. Any doctor fashion will tell you that his outrageous fashions, hair and makeup, are more than just a bid for attention. They're a cry for aid. He needs help, agreed Don Wilson, fashion expert for International Mail, the San Francisco-based men's clothing mail order company. This sounds very gay. No one expects Rodman to emulate his classy NBA colleagues by shaving his head and donning Armani suits. That would be like expecting Charles Barkley to stop talking trash. That's a basketball reference, everyone. <laughs> Is uh, that what it says in the in the thing? Or you? I'm par- I'm okay. adding that for all of our non-sports <laughs> listeners. Um, there are ways for Rodman to rebound fashion-wise. He can be himself without changing his hair color every five minutes or swathing his long, lean bodies in sequins and lace. And then he basically just starts by, like, giving him tips. Um, He says the makeup is supposed to give the illusion of being a woman, not a Halloween character. He could lighten up on the eyeshadow. And if he must be in and if he must be in the paint, stick with metallic shades, soften the eyebrows, ditch the eyeliner, break the lip, break the eyebrow pencil and use less ruse, much less. I'm just like, what kind of bullshit? This is like written by a Vogue writer. You know, this is the kind of shit that has gotten us in trouble for so long. And this is why bimboism is really important. This is why all these things are really like because you saying that someone needs to look a certain way is bullshit. And it makes me angry. I'm like, just, it, it, I can, no. It's so rude. It's like, especially, it's like. I get putting like needing to put lip liner on or some, someone being like, you should probably do lip liner so the, the makeup doesn't smear. And like, you don't want makeup smearing. Or you don't want that Britney Spears kind of black eye. Li- it does, it does make you a little unhinged. There's certain things, but it's like give you an effortless look. But I'm also like, let people look unhinged. Just like why it's like he was doing something so different and in a space where like, like, okay, we've, if you compare like David Bowie, who did a lot of like flamboyant dressing, and we can talk about like flamboyant versus drag versus cross-dressing, et cetera. But like Bowie is like a white guy and also in like the entertainment space where like maybe some more of that stuff goes, whereas like in the sports world it was just like they were so unaccepting yeah and like it's just like why are you picking on him why and in this like such a petty catty way i I would definitely have to do be racial and also like where he is in his business Mm -hmm. and he he does talk about that in interviews about how the nba really wanted him to be put in a box and he wasn't going to fit in that box, and he never was. And how in 1997 at the championships, he promised he was going to come in naked, which he didn't. But he was just like, fuck that. Like, why can't – and good question. Why can't they go out naked? Let's let's see some I would certainly tune in more often. I mean, me too. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like – it is just kind of interesting to see the industry that's supposed to present an idealized version of, like – being strong again that's why it's so androgynous in itself because it's count he's he's playing a counter version of what he's supposed to be Mm -hmm. yeah his whole persona was just so like one of the coaches one time said like you can't put a saddle on a mustang or something talking about him it was like he was just he was a he was an enigma even beyond like how he expressed and dressed like the way he was as a player yeah 
I get, it's this one was hard because I wanted to do more research and I of course was short on time because first off I wanted to break down what it meant to be like a man playing sports and then second off I wanted to being seen through that sports as a black man mm-hmm. and then the gender fluidity as a black man mm-hmm. I mean this is all through a lens of a white woman but I mean like I'm just trying to like break down and understand intersectionality and but anyways it's just like it's it's nuanced because Marlene Dietrich what I think got away with a lot of her stuff because she was considered glamorous and beautiful and it it didn't seem like there was the backlash that there was with Dennis Rodman and that's because he, who he was what he, what his job was and how he looks yes totally agree with that I also feel like to dress masculine feels a lot less sexually charged than dressing feminine well men have a lot of toxic masculinity to break down versus women or have always been a little bit more fluid with it. So you think it's like the shock factor that makes it so much more... Yeah, men are less likely to break down those boundaries and open spaces. I think at a certain point it was more comparable. Like like you were saying that in Paris, at one time it was actually illegal for women to wear pants. I think like at one time it was like way more shocking for a woman to dress masculine. Oh, sure. I'm sure there was a time and place that... I mean, especially during like Victorian times when binaries were exceptionally pushed. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just interesting to me that to tr- to express female. I mean, obviously, we talk about like how feminine dressing entails so much more expression. With Dennis Rodman's outfits, there was just so much vibrance and like creativity. Like, like okay, with Bowie. Bowie created characters throughout for himself throughout his career. And it's not like he was, he wasn't cross-dressing, right? Like he was dressing in character. Like people called him flamboyant because it was like crazy costumes, like really expressive, really out there. And like, there's an element of that that's gender bending or not, or like that's alternative because he's not presenting like men typically do. Yeah. It's like, exactly. And I, I mean, he would be, yeah, he wore dresses and got weird, wore makeup. He did all that shit. But also, like, he wasn't a great guy either. And to even say that, people get upset about. Versus if people said stuff that, like, with Dennis Rodman, people are, like, not going to defend him as much. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's because he's, a, I mean, it, mostly it has to be white men defending other white men. But I think it's also because of his art. Like, people are get defensive of, the, of their favorite artist. Well, I think also, like, the way Dennis Rodman has been received the media was just never on his side. And I so I think people feel comfortable. Because the media in itself is still white supremacist and upholding these like nuclear family ideas of what's like, it's ne- it was never going to be on a side, period. It's interesting, like when you, when we were reading about how like the media wouldn't publish stories about lesbians, it's like, there's just like so many reasons for the media to like intervene or not. Like it feels like by not publishing stories about lesbians, they're kind of like trying to keep it under wraps. Like they don't want people to know that yeah. that's like happening because they don't want women to like realize like, hey, that's a possibility you can do this. Like, yeah. Well, and it's like also the art from the artist thing. Like people give artists way more room to be problematic. Yeah. And but it's, it's usually white men that are the most problematic and you were like someone holds them accountable and then everybody comes to their their defense and like i hate i absolutely hate when white men are like well the left is getting out of control and i'm like no we're actually like standing grounds on like they're like cancel culture and it's like that doesn't exist louis ck has been called out for his like unconsensual items and is still like 
has a very successful tour happening. It's also just like we've all like people say like, oh, people are so offended. It's like we've always been offended by things. People have always gotten quote unquote canceled. But like at one point you got canceled for being for being a lesbian in Hollywood. Like we're just canceling people for different things. You've never been allowed to like just there's always media or like culture backlash towards people like it's just now it's happening to white men. So people are mad about it. White men are mad about it. They're also just such babies. Like, what about the Salem witch trials? Like, that was like, you are getting off easy, fucking Louis C.K. Like, you could have gotten fucking drowned. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but the most feminist thing I ever did was fall asleep at a Louis C.K. stand-up, <laughs> stand-up show. A long time ago? <laughs> it was in college, yeah. yeah Someone, like, hilarious. gave me a ticket. Yeah, yeah. But back then, we didn't know. I mean, but yeah, he's like a full-on predator. And openly, he, he's still doing stuff, too. Like, people yeah. will come out and like, he, no, he's, he did that to me still. Anyways, it, I, what I'm saying is, like, I think there's just an identity with white men being, like, cancel culture. And just when the when the lens is toured on, turned on them versus, like, Dennis like Dennis Rodman's reaction was never to be, like, cancel culture. I can't believe it. I'm being canceled. It was just, like, he would have to apologize for the shit that he said sometimes. And yeah, like we said, he was... He's deeply problematic. Yeah, he was like abusive. Anyway, like... But those weren't the things that they were calling him out on. It was never about the abuse towards women. About Larry Bird, some bullshit like that. But now I just feel like it's so much easier to be not conforming to those ideals because of people like Dennis Rodman. Plus... I, I wouldn't say just because of that. I would say it's a lot of things, obviously, but because social media has a huge influence because a lot more people have a lot more voices. The media isn't in the hands of just white men. Right. People can people can see what you're wearing. You get to just put things out into the ethers. And you, you can find a community of people that agree with you. Yeah. It's a lot more decentralized, like yeah. in, for better or for worse. Yes, exactly. And he's a hard car- character to even discuss because... I think he had such a nonchalantness about his fashion choices. Like, he wasn't trying to make a statement or a cause. I think he was, in a lot of ways, just being, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sensational. There was a lot of sensationalness behind it. Um, but he was very kind of just like, this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, he it, it wasn't coming out being like, we need to protect our LGBTQ, you know, like he wasn't, he wasn't making, I mean, he was like that on some levels, but he wasn't, that wasn't his full message. It was more about his individual experience. Which is really interesting because it's like for people to have a role model or a, an example of someone who's saying, I just like to go to gay bars and I like to wear sequin shirts. It just makes me feel like a complete person. I feel like that's such a, insightful way to say it where it's like we have all these labels for different sexualities and different genders but it's like to say like I just feel like a complete person when I can express both the masculine and the feminine parts of me it's like amen yeah and that in itself is a form of rebellion and activism I just it's just like it's not it's not he's not I don't want to hold him responsible or like I don't want him him to have to carry the responsibility of or ever have to carry the responsibility of bringing these, like, concepts of fashion, of nuanced, like, things as a black man especially. But at the same time, when he does that, I think he's he's pressured to kind of – I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's, it's just interesting because it's like he was never outward about, like, where he stood on anything. He just wanted to party and look cool. And, like, express himself. And he should have every right to do that. Right. He looked so hot. 
And he did. I tried to play a game called Smash or Pass, as you might have heard it, with my coworkers. Did I tell you this? And they were like, celebrities don't deserve um, any kind of, you know, celebrities don't deserve shit, which they don't. Like, we should glorify the people around us, not the celebrities. Am I right? But, like, we, they do have some cultural reference to the community at hand. They are a representation of how the media treats them. Is how that we society treat each other. I, I was like, that's just important to recognize. But also, like, they were making very good points about how stupid celebrities are and how they wouldn't just have sex with anybody. And I was just like, can we have good old sexual objectification and just say smash or pass, okay? Just look at Dennis Robin and tell me, is he hot or not? Because you were doing research for this. And so, yeah. you, and so what did people say? Uh, well, it was to Aaron. Shout out to Aaron. Um, and he was like, pass because I don't know him. Okay. His personality. This is what I'm talking about. I'm like, y'all are too much of a, you're being too good of a person. And I can't, I can't stand it. Yeah. And I feel like you kind of do know his personality. They actually didn't know who he was at all. <laughs> okay. Alok Ved Minan. Um, I hope I'm saying that correctly. I think that's a showcasing how social media can benefit trans activists and showcase a variety of like, are they're so fucking fashionable and so interesting and i watched their content literally because everything they wear and do is beautiful and looks really fucking cool i am kind of annoyed sometimes how poetic they are i will say that they're like i don't know just the words that they put together i'm like that's beautiful can you talk like a normal person they also are like very gracious in their comments and just like like people talk shit and then they'll respond saying like i'm so sorry that you have this heart that you're dealing with like you don't have to like be repressed blah 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 it's like damn i mean that's just really impressive yeah and i just feel like the i i feel like they're a shining example of how far we have come as a society not saying that we've come far at a lot at all like yeah thinking about it it's like very sad but i think since we have so much more access to our own personal identity through the internet that there is a freedom of expression that has never been seen before and there's something to be said about that. And I, Dennis Rodman wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be a, a blink of an eye now. Maybe. I mean, the sports world is still so conservative. Super hyper, yeah, mass. That is true. LeBron James did get um, hair plugs because he was so concerned about becoming bald. Which is so weird because like so many of them shave their heads. I mean, but his, his, you could see, even when he shaved his head, you could see the line. And you can't be a very good basketball player and be bald. Isn't that funny? It's not. It's a fact. Have, do you know what? Can you name one bald basketball player? I literally thought they all were bald. Oh, that's funny. They Some of them shave their head. That's a difference. You can still usually see the outline of people's hairline, you know, even if they shave their head. Unless they really shave it, which like, I don't know how they do that. But anyways, we're digressing. All right, let's uh, call this, I guess. So w- what is our breakdown from this? Can you can you sum it up? What is What are your takeaways? I don't know. You Maybe you do a conclusion. I don't know. I think the world is harsh on people that aren't white hetero cis men. Yeah. Um, but less so now, question mark? Mm-hmm. Kind of. Yeah, it's exciting to see what, like, that, that we see more representation in, in Hollywood, I guess, of, like, different gender expression, different bodies. Yeah. Barely. Barely, but uh, yeah, and yeah, we're we sorry, yeah, we we're, we're uh, we partied last night and we're about to party again. So <laughs> I I was just thinking about 
my next move, which is going to be to crack a beer. Okay, let's do it. All right, I love you, Hope. I love you, people. See you later.